0: Start here. Uh, Second Thessalonians is only three chapters, as you can see there. Uh, So instead of a year, I'm figuring six months. Right? What do you think? Uh, It don't matter what we think, I guess. But we'll get started today by reading uh, verses one through twelve, which is chapter one in its entirety. That's going to cover that booklet there. Uh, We're going to cover an introduction today as well to the book uh, to give you sort of an understanding of when this is being written, why it's being written, to who it's being written, and all those sorts of things. Um, I'm not sure if you're interested in that or not, but I think it's helpful when we study the Bible to kind of know what God is doing during that time and and, uh, what he is doing overall in the big picture of that book and that letter, especially as we see the Pauline epistles like this. Uh, And so without further ado, let's read uh, verse 1 through 12 here of 2 Thessalonians. Paul and Silvanus, or as we remember him, 1 Thessalonians, Silas and Timotheus or Timothy unto the church of Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you brethren, as it is meet because that your faith groweth exceedingly and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth, so that we ourselves glory in you and the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is manifest which is a manifest token of the righteousness of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. "...seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power." when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Wherefore, also we pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here I want to focus in on verse 12 for just a moment here to get a start. I know it's not the start of the book, but notice this. What's the purpose of the book? What's the purpose of life? What's the purpose of being a Christian? What's the purpose of the gospel? It is that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified in you. What's the purpose of the local church? What's the mission of the local church? It is the glory of Jesus Christ. Glory to His name. Now with that, Let's jump back in to the introduction. We need to see this and keep this in mind. Why is Paul writing for the glory of the name of Christ? Why is he writing to the Thessalonians? So that they would be glo- uh, so that Christ would be glorified in that church. Why does he write to any of the churches? So that Christ would be glorified in those churches. Why do we meet this morning for Sunday school? So that Christ would be glorified in this church. Why do we stay for worship service and, and, and fellowship? And why do we come back? And why do we pray? And why do we prepare our hearts for any of the services or any of the activities that we have here at Victory Way? It's to the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. All right? Now, uh, we want to begin by giving you sort of a brief introduction about this. Uh, the one good thing about going uh, in sort of um, order of things, doing 1 Thessalonians and a 2 Thessalonians or a 1 Peter and then a 2 Peter or something like that, is this it helps us to uh, have that second one. We, we get to a little bit of understanding of seeing how God is putting these things together, what the needs were at the time, but as well, uh, we don't have to cover everything that we covered with First Thessalonians because you've got that to look back at. But the place and date of writing, uh, one commentator writes, almost all conservative scholars believe that Second Thessalonians was written from Corinth. The basis of this conclusion is that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were present together in Corinth in Acts 18:5. They are not referred in the Bible as being th- together thereafter, though they might have been. Now, here's what we understand: as you read through the book of Acts, what happens is that they come to Thessalonica, they face persecution. And they take off, they go, next they see the Bereans, and then Paul ends up uh, at Athens, right? And then as we go on later, we see them at at Corinth, and and what happens is Paul would be at Corinth for about a year and a half, and so he would stay for for a good while there, Uh, he would minister there, and then what happens is while he is at other churches, what is he doing? He's writing to other churches that he's already been. To check up on them, as we read with 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he had sent Peter back to go get a report. Hey, Peter, go, I mean, not Peter, excuse me, uh, Timothy. Timothy, goes see how things are going. Timothy comes back, tells him how it's going, how they're doing. He praises God for it. And so here, 2 Thessalonians is sort of building on that again. He's writing to them. It seems to be shortly thereafter. This seems to be written shortly after his first letter to the church based on the topics covered, which would put the date of writing around 52 A.D., It is possible that this was written to them within a year of his first letter to them in order to address their issues. Now, here's what happens. They don't have email. They don't have phone calls. they don't got Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok. They've got no social media. They've got none of these things. Uh, What they have is writing letters back and forth. Any of y'all remember those days, right? Okay, right? So it's not that long ago, right? Now, here's what happens. They're writing a letter, and you know how long it takes to get there? Longer than it takes for mail to get delivered in Spur. I'm just kidding, Richard. (laughs) That takes a while to get the mail there, don't it, right? Now, we think our postal service, you complain about that. I sent a postcard. Kim and I sent a postcard from Dollywood to my mom and dad two weeks ago. They didn't get it, right? So, what do you know? I told them, I said, well, don't expect me to send you anything in the mail again. (laughs) Spent 50 cents for a stamp and 50 cents for that postcard. I'm just kidding. Well, that's how much it costs, but it shouldn't. But anyways, when we look at this, it takes a while to get there. They receive the news back. So Paul isn't wasting time here because there's issues to correct. There's issues to deal with. And Paul can't be at all the churches at one time. Every pastor feels this on a local level where he can't be in the life of every person at every time or in every pew at every time. We're one person. Paul is one man. Right. And so ultimately, as one man, he's being used as a tool of God to preach the word of God to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And what happens is through planning of churches, he sets up and establishes uh, men who are called and equipped by God to shepherd the church there. He's writing, and communicating back and forth with them. He's using Silas and Timothy uh, as uh, men to go and to check in on these churches, to come back with news so that then he knows what to deal with uh, uh, as well. Now, as we look at this, this shows his care and his concern as a pastor. This shows his pastoral heart that he wants to check back up on them. He didn't just leave them unto themselves. That's why he wrote the first one. And then he did not just go, well, I wrote you that first letter. If you can't get it straightened up, then whatever. I don't care. No, he cares. Clearly, he's writing back a second time to help them through these things because they, from the very beginning of the establishment of the church of Thessalonica, have been facing persecution and tribulations uh, to a, a major degree. Uh, Now, as we look here, the purpose of the letter, this will will help us out some. Uh, MacArthur talks about it. He's got a a New Testament survey. Uh, I I encourage you, if you want to study the Bible or to try to understand as you read the Bible a little bit better, get you an Old and New Testament survey. There's a lot of good ones out there. MacArthur's got a good one. Grimacchi's got a good one. Um, uh, Irvin Jensen has a good one on the Old Testament. I've got that one. I think he's also got a New Testament. Lots of options out there. And and, uh, it helps you to sort of understand, gives you an overview of each book of the Bible, uh, what are some historical things happening, some stuff like that, all right? Uh, Purpose of writing, stuff like that, all right? Now, here's what we talk about here. He says, so Paul wrote to his beloved flock who were discouraged by persecution and needed incentive to persevere, deceived by false teachers who confused him about the Lord's return, and three, disobedient to divine commands, particularly by refusing to work. Now, he dealt with that in chapter 1. I mean, not chapter 1, but in 1 Thessalonians, right? The issue where there were some who were going, well, the Lord's coming back, or things aren't going how I think they ought to, or I'm I'm facing persecution, tribulation, so I'm just going to sit back, enjoy my salvation, not tell anybody about it, not add or contribute to the work of the church. Well, we find you don't work, you don't eat, right? A man that don't work ought not eat. And so what we find is that in the church, you think we ought to have the same sort of mentality? We all have a part to contribute to be a part of of the membership of the body of Christ. And so uh, Paul emphasizes this. And here's what happens. Paul wrote to address those three issues by offering, one, comfort for the persecuted believers. uh, Chapter one uh, essentially covers that. Two, correction for the falsely taught and frightened believers, chapter two. And then and three, uh, confrontation for the disobedient and undisciplined believers. And now what we're going to find is that ultimately all preaching is to do just that. All preaching is to be comforting, correcting, and confronting. That is the job of a preacher. That is the job of a pastor, uh, to comfort the afflicted. Certainly, uh, we dealt with that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul wrote about that. But as well, we see that we are not merely to simply comfort. That's a part of preaching. It's a part of the ministry of the Word. But what else is? Correction, to correct false teaching. And the easiest way to correct false teaching is not to learn about false teaching. It's to learn right teaching. If you know what you believe and why you believe it, that is the most simple of apologetics. Now, what we talk about when we talk about apologetics, it is not giving an apology for our faith, but rather the idea of apology is one of an answer for our faith, a defense of the faith. And so when we uh, are told uh, to have a, a, always be ready to give an answer of the hope that lies within us, right, here's what we see. Easiest way to do that? Know what you believe and know why you believe it. Sadly, many their only theological statement that they've got, that they can make, that they go by, is I go to Victory Way Baptist Church. That's all I got. Right? That's not good, is it? Because now what happens if someone's at your door, or someone's talking to you, or maybe you got family who's, who's uh, perhaps involved with some of the cultish uh, religions, or, or perhaps practicing the occult, and now you don't know what to actually give an answer for. They're questioning Jesus and what he said and what he taught, and you don't know what he actually said or what he actually taught. This is why we must get in the Bible. Yes, we must be under Bible preaching and teaching and and the services and in the uh, groups of our church and and the times where that is is happening. That's bare minimum. But if you don't open up this book on your own and read and study and pray and read and study and pray and pray and read and study and pray, right? Then you're going to miss the whole boat. I cannot, and, and Paul could not, Give you the answer for every little thing that you've got to decide what you believe in, why. And that's the key. Don't merely seek a list of facts of the what's, but understand and believe the why by faith. Why do I believe this? Well, because the Bible says it, right? Think about it this way: the Little Children's Song. Jesus loves me, this I know. Is that the song? It keeps going, doesn't it? For the. Okay, well, there's your why. I believe the what, Jesus loves me. But how do I know Jesus loves me? The Bible tells me so. Now, here's what we need today more and more of. Thus saith the Lord, the Bible says. I love saying, and and I've been trying, the Lord's kind of convict me on it. We often say phrases, you know, the Word of God or the Scripture, things like that. Well, Muslims believe that they have the Word of God and Scripture. But we have the Bible, the Bible is and should be called by what it is. It is the, the word of God. It is God's word. It is God's inspired and fallible, and sufficient word. But we see that the Bible as a collective book that God has brought together and preserved century after century, it still holds true. and always will. Now, as so we understand that the need for comfort and correcting, but we see as well the confronting of disobedient and undisciplined believers Pastors love to comfort. They love to correct to help you get away from false teaching or a false understanding of the Scripture and to get to the right understanding. I love it when people learn something new. Love it. But I can tell you what pastors don't like. We don't like confrontation. Most don't. Now, there's some that are just hotheads that probably don't belong preaching anyways, and they like confrontation. But confrontation is biblical Because the Bible confronts us because it says this is who God is. This is what God is like. This is what He's done, what He's doing, what He's going to do. And this is what He expects and desires and deserves. The Bible does not come at us like a soft little teddy bear. It is described as a sword. A double-edged sword, a two-edged sword, one that cuts and divides to the very bone and marrow the sinew of who we are. It lays us naked and bare before God. It shows us who God really is, and it shows us who we really are, and it shows that the only hope for us to know Him is in Jesus Christ. And so because of this, the Bible always confronts us. It always as well, though, brings about a comfort to the believer. It does not bring comfort to the lost. It brings comfort to the believer. It brings confrontation to the believer. Notice the order of things. Comfort, correction, confrontation. For the lost soul, the Bible only does does it in this order. It confronts, it corrects, and if they believe the gospel, then it comforts. But for those who have already believed the gospel, the order is reversed. We are comforted by the scripture, then corrected by it as he continues to do a work in our hearts. And then he confronts us and goes, oh, and by the way, here's a sin that's going to keep you from receiving comfort and correction. Well, so be confronted by these things and find that all three play a key role role. We find that the scripture later, Paul is going to write this for reproof, for rebuke, and exhortation of God's people. So in some ways, each letter that Paul writes, or even the New Testament, uh, uh, each New Testament epistle is being written to bring comfort, conviction, and conformity to Christ's word, work, and will. This is how God builds the church. This is how God purifies the church. This is how God protects the church. This is why the preaching of the word is absolutely critical. So Paul is seeking to help this church through the Word of God. And ultimately, that's what we're here to do today as well. Now, with the major themes and doctrines we're going to see, especially here, uh, persecution and perseverance of believers. Both things should be true in the life of a believer. Why, why do you say persecution should be true in the life of a believer? Because if we're not having any sort of opposition, then that means we're not living as a Christian. Jesus tells us through the Apostle Paul later on that all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer shall suffer persecutions tribulations trials now as we know from first thessalonians already he's going to keep us from the big tribulation but those little ones are going to be there till we get called up out of here and so we should expect difficulty we should expect people to mock us to ridicule us to disagree with us to spit upon us to hate us they did it to jesus who is perfect in every way why would they not do it to us As a matter of fact, to be a Christian means to be a little Christ. It means to be Christ-like. And to be like Christ, perhaps one of the greatest ways to be like Christ is to suffer for His name's sake. It is to suffer for what is right, what is true, what is holy, what is just. We see the major persecution and perseverance of believers that not only are we to expect persecution, but we are to persevere through it. This is the Christian life. The Christian life is persecutions and trials, and persevering by faith through them. Now, we also see in, cha- uh, in chapter 2 and 3 especially the eschatological issues. The day of the Lord, son of perdition, a falling away, judgments, and on down the line, which we'll deal with those as we get to each one, highlighting them, if you will, so that we can understand them better. Because let's be honest, if there's ever been a doctrine that people are confused or divided over, it's eschatology. There's folks who are all sorts of concerned about it today. As a matter of fact, I've seen this. Pastor Paul, but I think he's got most of his gray hairs because of this. He'd preach through Revelation and then end it and uh, do something else for a couple months, right, in a Sunday school or Wednesday night. And he would go, hey, we're getting ready to wrap this uh, series up. Uh, anybody got something? Want to do? want Can you do Revelation? I want to know the end times. What people are really saying is, Can you tell me the date, the time, the hour that Jesus is coming back so I can figure out how soon I need to get my life together? We don't know. Nor are we supposed to know. Nor would it even help us to know. What we need is to trust the Lord. And so, I want to help clear up as we go through this book, and and chapter 2 is going to do that for us. It's going to clear up what the end times is going to look like. And by the way, much of what is going to take place, we're going to be gone for anyways. We forget Chap, uh, chapter four through 19 of the tribulation right, of Revelation that deals with the tribulation period. Nowhere do you find the church in it. We're gone, so I don't have to so much worry about microchips and the mark of the beast because I ain't planning on being here. All right, it makes sense. All right, now let's get into verse one and two, the greeting here that takes place. This is pretty simple, and this is as far as we'll get today. Paul and Silas and Timothy unto the church of the Thessalonians. Now let's break that down. Who's writing? Paul, Silas, Timothy, right? If anything, Paul is writing, and he's including Silas and Timothy because they're right there with him. They're a part of the labor. They were a part of the ones that founded the church at Thessalonica, so he includes them in the work. this also shows that Paul had a great humility. Paul did not go, I, Paul, the apostle, the only one, the only one worth writing to, Sadly, some hyper-dispensationalists think that uh, Paul is, is uh, equivalent of the only one that matters in the Scripture, and that is false, all right? God used Paul for the, for the church and to preach to the Gentiles, so we thank God for it, but don't forget that he is not the lone ranger. And even the lone ranger had a sidekick. Now, Paul always talks about in his letters about fellow ministers and servants of the gospel, and so we should care about them as well. Paul, Silas, Timothy, who's he writing to? The church of the Thessalonians. Now notice this. He includes them and writes to them as if they are a body. You know why? Because they are. He doesn't say, I'm writing to the town of Thessalonians. I'm writing to just the pastor. Right? He could have just wrote a letter to the, you know, whoever the pastor of Thessalonians. He doesn't do that. Who does he write to? The church. Why? Because the whole Bible is for the whole church. It is for every member, and it matters to every member, and it ought to matter to every member. And we find the the very fact that Paul views the local church as how God functions and operates in this world. So the local church matters. It's it's clear here. Furthermore, he says, uh, the church of Thessalonians in God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul and his fellow laborers greet the church of Thessalonica once more in the same loving way. Paul writes in reference to his relationship to his fellow missionaries, to God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. There we have uh, the three names and titles, if you will, of Jesus Christ. Lord, Kyrios, which is uh, that he is the Lord, the Sovereign, the the Mighty One over all things, the Ruler of all creation, the One who created all things and sustains all things, and the One who all things belong to. Jesus, this goes uh, back to the Old Testament uh, name Joshua or Yeshua. This is uh, the the name of Jesus that was prophesied and that was given to Him. It means Savior or One who saves. Then the Messiah, which is Christ. That's the word for it. What does Christ mean? It doesn't merely just mean Messiah, but it is the Anointed One of God. It is the Holy One of God. It is the Set-apart One of God to go into the world to bear the sins, to save, justify, redeem, and rescue His people. So we find who Christ is, and we find that ultimately before He gets into matters of issues, that the only thing that truly matters is if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you submit to Him as Lord Jesus Christ. With this as well, we are comforted at the fact that we have a Heavenly Father Here this relationship shows in verse number 1 that unites Paul and the Thessalonians together so that from the very start of the letter they see his concern. He goes, we have the same Heavenly Father, we have the same Lord Jesus Christ, though you are the body that is there at the church of Thessalonica, we are a part of the same greater body, and I get to praise God in that. He finds unity with them, he finds comfort with them, and he greets them In a wonderful way, he gets into the position of being in Christ before he gets into the practice of what they need. This is why we see that union in Christ, with Christ, goes hand in hand with communion with Him, our fellowship and our walk with Him. Green writes, God is not viewed simply as the one to whom humans owe their existence and who sustains all human life. Acts 17.28 But as the God with whom these former pagans have come into intimate familial relationship." They've been adopted by this father. They've been adopted. They have a new heavenly father. At the same time, the designation of God as our father draws the Thessalonians believers into one family. This means that the Thessalonians, if you've got divisions or issues, cut it out. Why? Because you have one heavenly father, so get your act together. He goes on. He says, draws them into one family and joins them together with Paul and his associates, showing that there is no real difference between them, that they are one in Christ together. Furthermore, he goes on and he says, With Paul and his associates, as well as with the church throughout the world, the foundation of the Christian family and of, the Christian, and of Christian unity finds its bedrock in this prayer and confession. In verse 2, grace unto you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this uh, in similar fashions all throughout Paul's writings and greetings. And here's what we see. Uh, the motivation and means of grace and peace are given here in verse 2. MacDonald writes grace provides enablement for everything within the will of God and peace gives serenity in every kind of circumstance now think about this we all know our great need of grace we all know our great desire of having peace but notice that the two are codependent and the one needs the other grace offers peace to us to know Christ, to be reconciled with Him, but as well with one another. And so where we have peace in a church, it's because that we are living and abounding in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Christian and the church is nothing without either one of these things. We're nothing without peace with God and peace with one another. We're nothing without the grace of God and with grace one with God. Another, grace unto you and peace. Notice the source from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Green continues, he says, Although the words grace and peace summarize the totality of the saving benefits that these and the rest of the Christians enjoyed, in Second Thessalonians, they acquire spe- uh, special significance in light of the situation that beset this church. Chapter 2, verse 16 signals God, our father, as the one who by his grace gave us eternal encouragement, good hope. This eschatological hope, this end times hope, these last day hope, which proceeds from divine grace allows believers to stand face to face with death. Moreover, the blessing of peace appears again at the end of the letter where the apostle expresses the desire that the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. An illusion, to the persecution that assailed them, chapter 316, as they stand against every kind of adversity, whether in life or in death, these believers can rest in the security of receiving grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what we see. No Christian is complete or mature without grace or peace. Where we grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, we grow with a deeper sense of peace and security in Him, and as well a deeper peace with one another. Grace gives peace about our past. It gives peace in our present. And it gives peace about our future. See how grace and peace work together knowing this, that what He's going to address and what He already addressed in 1 Thessalonians that Christ is coming So endure these persecutions gladly, knowing that God's grace and His peace are sufficient in times of trouble and need, and that He will deliver us one day from the present trouble that we are in. Peace is the gift that grace gives to live the Christian life. Persevere through persecutions and false doctrines while awaiting the promised return of Christ. So truly today and every day, may Uh, God give us grace and peace from our Father Lord Jesus Christ so that we can serve Him even through persecutions, even through hard times, even through suffering as we await the coming of Christ, as we await our everlasting and final redemption. So, with that... Let's pray, and we'll close up. Lord, we love you. We want to thank you for this time. We're grateful that we could look to your word, grateful that we can see how you continue to build upon your word and to give your people what they need. Lord, I pray that we would receive it today, that we would receive your grace and your peace, and that we would see all that we have, and all that we need is found in Christ. We do want to pray that today you would prepare our hearts for your word today, uh, to worship you in spirit and in truth, that you would unite us together, protect your people, and, Lord, give us sweet fellowship together to your honor and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right.